Welcome to A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk Into a Bar, a podcast with relatively well-informed and irreverent musings on religion, news, and society. And now, for your hosts, Rabbi Asher Lopatin and John Geringer. Hey, Asher. Hey, John. How are you? I'm doing well. It's been a long time. I feel like it's always been a long time. We do a lot of these where we do it every other week. We should do it more often. And I suspect we will now that the holidays are approaching. Oh, there's a lot to talk about. A lot of new stuff. I know it's it's our second year, but a lot of new stuff. Same holidays, but new material. And we're in the month of Elul, which means Rosh Hashanah is right around the corner. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. Yeah. Are you have you done your Cheshbon HaNefesh? Have you done an accounting for your soul like we all recommended last year? Well, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And I'm watching, well, I saw Oppenheimer. I saw some movies that'll maybe help me reflect a little bit. And the Barbie movie didn't help me reflect that much. But working on it, reading reading, and learning, and and we'll see what, what comes up. But I have to say, it's always scary. And you're never prepared, really, for Rosh Hashanah. So, But I'm glad we have this one month ramping up to prepare. And let me say this. It's a little bit radical. But God is preparing also for these holidays. I think God is excited also. So we're all preparing. Is he? Does he have a lot of company coming over for dinner? Well, first of all, I'm not sure he is the correct pronoun, but... but wow. Provocative. Uh, well, especially with your shul, with your new uh, rabbah. Uh, That's but, right. It is, now, it is now public that we will have a female rabbah Named uh, Raquel Feingold, who you know very well, having served, she was your rabbinic intern, I believe, about uh, 15 years ago. She was a, a, a ritual director and education director. Yeah, for six years, for six years. Yeah, that's exciting. No, I think that, it, you know, the Hasidut, and you'll hear Lubavitch talk about Melech Basadeh, that in, in Elul, God is like in the field. God is like with us, searching trying to find us. We're trying to find God. In a sense, yeah, maybe God has us all over for a spiritual meal on the on Rosh Hashanah. I've always thought of that metaphor like a politician's got to run for office and he or she is shaking hands. And that's what El is all about. So hopefully we get to press some flesh and put in a good word for all of us for this year. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a really good analogy because you know, Rosh Hashanah, we talk about God as being the king. It's the, you know, HaMelech, HaYoshev, God is the king on the great throne. In a sense, God kind of needs to earn that title by God's relationship to us. There is that element. I mean, I'm not arguing that God is all-powerful and all-knowing, but at the same time, to be king, people have to think you're king. Usually, I guess you could just be king if no one does, but really to be king, you need that recognition. I just hope he does better than everyone at the GOP debate last week. <laughs> well, yeah, that was a bit tough to. T- I we could talk. Do, do you want to? Should we launch into politics or? Uh... No, no, no. We we actually have a very exciting guest, Professor Amos Guerra who I've known for a few years now. He's a, what I'd like to call the world's most interesting man, or at least the most interesting man I know next to you, Asher. <laughs> he, he is a professor of law at SJ College of Law. He's a distinguished fellow at our Consortium for the Research and Study for Holocaust and the Law. He's a counselor of International Center of Conflict Resolution at Katz School of Business. And a few more things. From 86 to 2004, he was a, a JAG with the IDF, so legal advisor. By the end, he was legal advisor to the Gaza Strip commander. He wow. teaches criminal law, terrorism, national security, bystander issues. He runs a cool terrorism simulator for his students that I, I've been a part of for the last few years. Really cool, real-time terrorism simulation. And on top of all that, as if, you know, if that wasn't good enough, Dayenu, he has written a few interesting books. One, he's a fellow son of Holocaust survivors. He's written a a book called The Crime of Complicity. He cares less about the bad guys in the Holocaust as much as the bystanders and the enablers. 
It's a whole book about the bystanders in the Holocaust. And then that's sort of, he launched from that to write a book called Armies of Enablers, Survivor Stories of Complicity and Betrayal in Sexual Assaults on College Campuses and Sports and the like. And the next one I think he's writing is about his experiences in connection with the protests in Israel. Wow, so much to talk about. Amos, welcome. It's welcome. A pleasure to be with you two distinguished gentlemen. <laughs> well, you know, John, I got just got to ask, Amos, professor, do you have, like, is the last chapter in these books heartwarming chapters about the people that weren't just bystanders? Do you lift us up at the end of these books? No. <laughs> I think I told you, Asher, he, Amos is the most Israeli-American I know. So don't don't expect, you know, sort of heart-tugging stuff Yeah, I'm here. not into that feel-good moment thing. I mean, you're right. Like those Israeli movies. They're, all those Israeli movies are so sad. They're just, they end so bleak. I'm not, I don't think that I'm the master of bleakness. I am the master or the master. What I tr seek to do is to provide a path forward on the various issues that I write about. Mm -hmm. And leave it up to the reader to, to choose the path I suggest or something that is, you know, more attuned to their perspectives. Wow. Let, let's turn back the Wayback Machine. And we've talked about this on the podcast before because of uh, the national security law class that I teach. And we brought up Israel and how it is, you know, arguably one of the more if not one of the most moral armies out there in light of the neighborhood in which it sits. And since you were in that role, I want to hear about your thoughts on how you help promote that. I think that, I mean, you're asking a, a intended or unintended, a loaded question. When I was the commander of the IDF School of Military Law, we introduced the world's first interactive video teaching soldiers how to conduct themselves under the umbrella of morality and armed conflict. Wow. And we created that interactive video in response to significant criticism of how soldiers were conducting themselves, particularly at checkpoints. This wow. would be the early 2000s. Hmm. And the, the interactive video was extremely creative. I had a young staff who really were creative they used American movies as teaching by example, negative example. <laughs> um, and it's a very I'm effective laughing, way. But I can imagine which kind of movies, yeah. Right, like Platoon and stuff like that. It's an effective way of teaching. I think that the question, and my instinct tells me that we may well disagree, in the context of today, the IDF, and, the, and whether it's the chief of staff, Alevi, or the, particularly the commander, the central command, folks... Uh, his issue or their issue is not so much the IDF, but the issue that they're confronting uh, is a is frankly yes. There's of course Palestinian terrorism, but there's Jewish terrorism, and yeah. the problem with the Jewish terrorism, first of all, there there are Jewish terrorists, is that the government turns a blind eye, and right. so when we talk about the need to conduct yourself morally, the IDF is hamstrung by a government that turns a blind eye to. Jewish terrorism on behalf of its voters. And that is puts the IDF in the most extraordinarily untenable situation. Yeah, I think that's when we see that, we, meaning the Jewish community here, when we see that, it's it's almost unbelievable. I know, John, you sent me something, it was from a few years ago, but it was just still disturbing. Uh, it's hard to believe that Jews can have that kind of cruelty. Uh, in particular, I'm a Dati Lumi. I'm a religious Zionist Jew. I'm a modern Orthodox Jew. And for me to see people that are, you know, learning Torah and are influenced by rabbis, I'm not, I don't want to be naive. They are influenced by the rabbis. The rabbis are are egging them on, many of them, but it's really horrific to to see that and disturb so i tell you asher well, we're going to disagree with respectfully Good. anybody who's surprised is living in la la land the itamar ben gvirs and the mahir khanas and the the rest of those call them fascists call them jewish nazis whatever you want there's nothing new under the sun the only difference is that netanyahu let them into the government that's mm -hmm. the difference 
and they have, you know, if you will, free reign. And a guy like Ben Gvir, who's Goebbels, or Smutrich, who's an unhinged racist. The only difference is they are now the Minister of Finance, the Minister of, of Public National Security, which is the most Kafkaesque thing possible. Ithamar Gvenvir, who's been indicted 53 times um, and convicted of racism, incitement, and violence. He's the Minister of National Security, State Security. I mean, if we're going to have a real conversation, that's the, that is the, the challenge that, that those of us who are committed to democracy, the rule of law, are facing. And that's the reason we're out in the streets, you know, 34 straight weeks. And I'll say, and I I, I think I've been very clear about this. I've been, getting, you know, I, I get interviewed all day long. And I write about this. I think the American Jewish community needs to have the proverbial come to Jesus moment about what, what, what Israel is at the moment. And if that makes the American Jewish community uncomfortable, then so be it. But that's the reality. Well, let me, I would challenge you respectfully back and, and this the the group that didn't win the elections, whatever I know, it could have had merits and labor done at an agreement and yada yada yada. But you know, this is what happens when you go seventy five years without a constitution and avoid kicking the can down the road. And maybe it's got to be a come to Jesus moment. The record reflect that this is the first time Jesus has been mentioned twice in one minute. Well, you know, I suppose. <laughs> So you're right. So there's no constitution, but that's not a reason for a government to eviscerate a Supreme Court. And that's exactly what Netanyahu, whether he's being led by Levine or pulling Levine, could have a long conversation about who's who's the Mary Regev, you know, the minister of what is she, transportation when she opened the red line on the train last week. Of course, not on the Shabbat, even though my tax dollars or tax shekels are going to that, which is beyond outrageous called Netanyahu the engine and called Mrs. Netanyahu the, the 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 energy. I mean, I mean, really. So if Netanyahu is the engine and he is hell-bent on doing away, eviscerating the, the independent Supreme Court and the whole notion of judicial review, and we all know why he's doing it, because he's under indictment and about to be convicted. I mean, that's obvious, because he wants a Supreme Court that's convenient for him. That's obvious. But he also understands, I think he understands, he's going to pay an extraordinary price. And that's the reason, the fact that he's not willing to commit to respecting the Supreme Court decision, because there are two hearings uh, next month. Mm -hmm. I assume he understands that if he doesn't respect the Supreme Court decision, Israel is going to shut down totally. And I really don't know what the American administration will do. 200 Israeli businesses are, are going to just go on a massive shutdown strike. So, yeah, they won the election. I mean, you look at the numbers. That, I mean, we could have a long conversation about the numbers. And absolutely, Constitution. The Ibnar Benvirs of the world who are neo-Nazis or fascist Nazis or whatever term you want have no idea what democracy is. And look at his actions. I mean, it's openly discussed today in Israel about apartheid. This, this has never been before. And those of us who are wedded to democracy, those of us who served in the IDF, those of us whose kids served in the IDF, and the fact that the government is willing to consider this the new draft law whereby the, the, the Haredim who don't do anything, they're the ultimate parasites, and I'm paying for it. And now they want a bill that says that they're not serving the idea of equates financially in terms of benefits. My kids, that is beyond outrageous. And that, I hope, will lead to the downfall of this unhinged government. So take a step back. How comfortable are you with Americans who themselves or their kids are not serving to dictate to Israel what it should do? I don't know about Americans. I know about myself. I know that there are 400,000 Israelis who demonstrate every week. By American numbers, that's 34 weeks, 20 million Americans, 34 weeks. This never happened anywhere in the world before. My focus is on those of us, those of us Israelis like myself, my family. We're three generation protesters. My late mother used to bake cookies for the demonstrators. That is my sole focus, is those of us who are committed to preserving democracy. And we're in a fight against fascism, which is unhinged. But I mean, the maybe a greater worry is: Do you have a majority, and in the future, a majority in Israel that are democratic? Because the, I, I, so, the, I mean, we all see the public opinion polls for whatever public opinion polls are worth. But if the elections are held today. Uh, what is the opposition today would have sixty-five seats, and the the majority today would oh, have. Oh, but I'm talking about in twenty years when they're. Oh, in twenty years, so you know, first of all, in terms of the the the. The Orthodox, first of all, they're thank God their birth rate is going down because the I economic model that. is unsustainable. And we are not, we're at some point, we'll just stop paying for it. There's open talk about what we in Israel and America would call a tax revolt. It's absolutely outrageous that my tax dollars go to people who don't do a damn thing for the state. That's not sustainable. They also realize that I think they got scared, they were caught totally by surprise at the absolute animus that's directed at them. 
I think we also, you know, we those of us in Israel believe in Achim Anachnu, brothers we are. That's not the case anymore. And that's openly discussed. They're, I mean, I'm very open about this. The Hasidic guy, the Orthodox, uh, you know, who doesn't serve in the army, who doesn't work, I'm paying for him. I'm paying for his kids. He's not my brother. And I'm, you know, I two weeks ago, and I'm very open about this. I two weeks ago had a, an all-out screaming match with these guys because they don't do a, a thing for the state. And he was, you know, and he at the end of the day, the way he, we finished the conversation, he says, we will kill you. I said, great, outstanding, good for you. After you haven't done a damn thing for the state. I mean, you know, that just for me. Is yeah, not but just- they're going to become between the Edot HaMizrach Jews who might not be so keen on democracy. They're not from a democratic tradition, many of them. I mean, all of them. And then the former Soviet Union Jews who also don't come from a tradition of democracy and the Haredi Jews and some of the Hardal Jews that the, you know, right-wing religious Zionists, the ultra-religious Zionists, that's that could be in 10, 20, 30 years, the vast majority, the majority of, of the Jews, of, of the voters. And then you'll have people that just don't don't share our, I would say, American kind of democratic values. You know, step by step. First of all, I tell you where we failed, and I'm very open about this, where we failed is we assumed that democracy is weaned, gleaned from your mother's milk. We made a, a significant mistake in not teaching democracy. We thought democracy can be learned by osmosis. That was a mistake. And there's no doubt when on the hope that we win the next election, we're going to have to begin the process of, of teaching civics and democracy in a way that we felt on that. I absolutely agree. We fell, fell asleep with the switch. With respect to the Chavidim, I mean, the not not the Orthodox, but the ultra-Orthodox. It's not, right. not all Hasidim, right? It's yeah, okay. Or, or those who don't work. It, that model is going to end. And then they're going to have to have a choice. If they want to live in poverty, they can live in poverty. I really don't care. But there's no will be no justification for my from our not tax dollars, but tax shekels going to them. With respect to the Sephardic community, you know, I'm very careful in those kinds of broad broad assertions. I do think that that there is a need once this hopefully once this unhinged madness ends to I want to say to rebuild the state because I don't like that expression, but to engage reengage in a way that perhaps we have not done successfully. And that, you know, that's a challenge. And I'm well, you know, we divide ourselves into three camps. There are those of us who are optimistic. I'm 100% optimistic that we will win. There are pessimists whom I have zero tolerance for. And there are those who are ap- apocalyptic, who I have even less tolerance for. I find those who are bystanders and enablers. John knows that I write about bystanders and enablers. John knows I'm writing a new book on this, about the situation in Israel. You know, you sit in the in your living room, you know, in Hebrew, to sit in the living room and go, oy vey. That doesn't work for me. I mean, I'm. We all need to be out there. But I do agree with you. There's going to be a need to course adjustment. Will it be hard? Yeah, it's hard. But you know, some a friend of mine says that Israel is not a state. Israel is a project, and which is an interesting way of looking at this. And there's a reason that we're out there every Saturday night. Is it fun to be out there? No. I did the march from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. I did three of the four days. Was it fun for me when Ben Gvir supporters screamed at me that Ben Gvir will kill me? Ben Gvir, no. Is it fun to be driven off the road? No. Is it fun to have my car vandalized? No. Is it fun to have these people speak ill to my family? No. Won't deter me. Oh. I'm going to have to get Ben Gvir to give the other side of this debate at some point. I don't know. Ben, if Gvir's, we have... parent, ben Gvir's parents live literally five minutes down the street from us. His dad recently passed. Now he's suing the, the foreign worker. Who, I mean, I could write, I could talk about Itamar Grenvir forever because, as you know, John, in one of my positions in the IDF, I dealt with the with the Jewish far right, including Itamar Grenvir. So let, let's take a few steps back. I want you to talk about this arc of books that you are writing, where you you look at these concentric circles, and if at the concentric at the middle of the concentric circles are the perpetrators, and then a layer out from that are the enablers, and a layer out from that are the bystanders. Walk us through how you developed the book on the Holocaust, how you developed the book on the sexual harassment scandals, and then how those link to what you're thinking now. So I grew up in Ann Arbor as the only child of two Holocaust survivors. Mm-hmm. Then when I was 12, oh, oh, my blue. father took me. Huh? Oh, blue, Michigan, Ann Arbor. Absolutely. Absolutely. And my father, when I was 12, took me canoeing on the Huron River and uh, said to me in one minute, I will tell you my story. In one minute, I will tell you your mother's story. 
And this is the first and last time we'll ever have this conversation. And they meant it. I never heard the word Holocaust in our house. There was not one book on the Holocaust. I grew up knowing nothing about my parents. When I was a junior at Kenyon College, where I went, my mentor, who was not Jewish, but whose wife, like me, second generation, only child, knew nothing. Professor Evans said to me, you know, at some point you need to come to grips with the Holocaust, Jewishness, Judaism, and all that. I said, I think that's a great idea. What do I do? He said, well, write an article, honors thesis about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. I said, that's a great idea. What the hell is the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising? Which is, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm beyond embarrassed. I knew nothing. So I wrote it up. Okay, fine. And then I, you know, did the IDF, moved to Israel, did the IDF. And then 10 years ago, I was training for the Salt Lake Marathon. And my running partner, who's not Jewish, we were in the middle of one of those awful 20-mile runs, said to me, how did this, this being the Holocaust, how did this happen? Just, you know, killing time. And I had a brilliant academic answer, which is, I had no idea. Um, pretty smart guy, huh? And I came back to my apartment and I said, Chalas, uh, enough is enough. And I became autodidactic. I read a lot, lot, lot. And I realized there was a topic that had never really been addressed from the perspective of the law. And that's the role of the bystander in the Holocaust. There are two great books on the bystander, one by Victoria Barnett and the other by Raoul Hilberg. But there's never been a book about the, the legal complicity of the bystander. So mm. I wrote a book, which is really about my parents. I viewed the complicity of the bystander through the lens of my parents' story. My mother was in the attic in Budapest, twice taken to be shot. My father survived um, a death march. The book came out, translated into Dutch and Chinese. I give, I've given lectures you know, worldwide on this stuff. And I thought I was done with it. And then my publisher, which is the American Bar Association in Chicago, they took me out to dinner. And they said, what's next? I said, I'm done with this. They said, yeah, but you're a huge sports fan. I am a huge sports fan. And you've also heard about the Catholic Church. I said, yes, even though I'm Jewish, I have heard about the Catholic Church. And they said, well, there's your next book. And like an idiot, I agreed. And that turned into Armies of Enablers, which is about the primarily the girls from the USA Gymnastics, Michigan State, Catholic Church, and the guys from Ohio State who were sexually assaulted, about the enablers. I don't care about the assaults. It's all about the enablers, those who knew but didn't prevent or didn't act proactively. And then I thought I was done with it. And then I got a phone call from someone who heard me give a talk. And that led to a project about enablers and pedophilia which is focused on the 1997 murder of a 12-year-old boy by his teacher, who for the course of, over the course of 30 years had been abusing boys in uh, Pennsylvania and West Virginia until he killed this boy. And that I'm working on now. And then because of the protests in Israel, I'm very grateful that the American Bar Association agreed to a second edition of Crime of Complicity, which is to look at the question of the enablers and the bystanders in Israel in the context of the demonstrations. Wow, wow. So how do we how do we avoid becoming bystanders or enablers? Forget perpetrators, because I assume those are those folks are already gone. I mean, that is in many ways the question. There are, I think, three different ways to look at it. One is education. To educate about the concept of, of duty. The other is to impress upon people the notion of morality, the quote unquote right thing to do. And the third, which I'm very involved in, is the criminal the criminalizing of the enabler and the bystander. I've, I've been working with legislators, both in the United States and around the world, on efforts to convince that the bystander and the enabler has committed a crime. There's a long discussion in the law, John, you'll get this, the difference between crime of omission, crime of commission, and the question whether a bystander or enabler has committed a, a commission or an omission. I, full confession, I testified in Australia a couple of years ago, and I argued there that it was a, it's a crime of omission, and I did mea culpa. So I did mea culpa, and I said I got it wrong. It's not an omission; it's a commission, because right. the decision not to act is a is an is a decision. And let's let's stop right there, Asher. When we think about halakha and this issue, presumably there's more of an obligation if you see your fellow man drowning or whatever the case may be. There's an affirmative obligation to help. That, that may not, so maybe from a Halakhic perspective, let's hear from you, and then we'll switch back to Amos as to how he's trying to bend American law to be more like Halakha, it seems. Well, it's interesting, right, and I'll let Amos talk more, but lo tam there is a verse not standing idly by. Now, there's a question about how much risk you have to take to save your friend, but it's a violation of that, and also... Hashev Tishivan the whole idea of Hashavat Aveda, returning something that's lost. Now, most of the commentators talk about that's for within the Jewish context, the Jewish community, but 
still the idea that when you see an object that is lost or, you know, when you see your, we had it in last week's portion, when you see your friend's donkey collapsing under its load, you have to help it up. And so, yeah, there are all these, these laws there. And right. So is there, that was my question also, normally you're taught, well, there's a big difference. And, you know, then the the whole idea of rights versus responsibilities and that Judaism focuses more on responsibilities and whatever secular law, I don't know, all other laws (laughs) represent or American law rights, but almost I'm sure you've, you've dealt with a lot of this. So I leave religiosity to the two of you distinguished gentlemen. I'm totally out of my depth and I don't play that something that I know something that I don't know anything about. The having legislation... said that, having said that. <laughs> no, I really, I really know. Absolutely not. And it's really interesting, John. I've also had outreach from the evangelical Christian evangelical community. That's very interested in my work, but from an even Christian perspective, and I said, I'm willing to talk, I'm willing to talk to anybody as long as we all understand that I leave religion to others. Okay. Just, not, you know, for me. The Utah legislation imposes on you as a bystander the obligation to dial 911. Mm. No more than that. No requirement to physically intervene. And the the condition or the qualifier is if acting would endanger you and or your family. Ah. And we had a lot, let me spend obviously many hours asking ourselves, is the bystander physically present or can you be a bystander on social media? Right, because mm-hmm. you can see on Facebook what's happening, and we we, we decide. I mean, not we, the legislator, Representative Brian King, that because there's always going to be uncertainty what you see, what you think you see on Facebook, mm-hmm. that the bystander has to be physically present, has capability, and has knowledge, direct knowledge. But the requirement um, is only to dial nine one one. There's no under any condition imposition of physical intervention because first of all, you never really know exactly what happened, and two, physical intervention can cause you obviously physical harm. And the idea really is to, you know, pick up the phone. Hello, Mr. Law Enforcement. But that's also complicated. I gave a talk when I was writing the book at the University of Virginia Law School. And I had a, I had like all the student body there, blah, 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 blah. And some, an African-American, African-American student stood up. And she said, you know, Professor Giora, this is really interesting. We all know the word after interesting is but. She said, but when you upper middle class white guy, law professor, calls 911, the police immediately assume you're the victim. When we African-Americans call 911, the immediate assumption is that we're the perpetrator. Hmm. And she became very, very emotional. It was a powerful, awful moment. And then we reached out to um, the um, prosecutors here in, in Utah, also the defense bar, Black Lives Matter, because it was important for us, obviously Representative King, that we not have here unintended consequences in terms of legislation that would enable the police to target minority communities, which we all understand the consequences of that. So, yes, I, I mean, through her, I, I confess I wasn't sufficiently aware of who it is that's calling 911, right? But for us, or for me, because Representative King and I are involved in criminalizing the enabler, what it really, I've been accused, I took this as a compliment. I think they meant it as a negative. I've been accused of restructuring the social contract. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like, I took that as, wow, look at me. Yeah, a law professor who did something in the real world. Right, but I think the guy meant it as, as criticism, but I took it as a, as a positive because I really do think we need to, again, I leave the Judaism to you all, but really is that, do we have a duty and a responsibility one to the other? Well, it's interesting because you do, I think, challenge the idea of rights that that and for instance, well, I, I, I have two questions, but maybe they're connected. One is one is that in your review of Holocaust and uh, sexual crimes, would a little bit of intervention have helped like the like this 911 just a little bit like. Or you say no, really would have that wouldn't have done much good. And and the let me leave it with that question. The 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 other question I have is sort of with let's say reproductive rights and abortion and right to life and all that kind of stuff that you know, those people that want to say, well, no, if I'm to save these babies, I gotta attack abortion clinics. So uh, they're kind of a similar question of uh, how much 
is would would be effective so i'll give you the law school answer it depends can i get cle credit for this podcast <laughs> so i teach you 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 be asked me what do i teach so today i taught the i taught the bystander class it's a seminar with 12 students and i suggest to the students that they view this conversation through the lens three lenses lens i or lenses i never know hmm, effectiveness lenses lenses is good sounds right effectiveness efficiency and application and the idea is to have a law in place that is sufficiently practical tangible that is implementable which goes back to what I said earlier about education, because I think it's pretty clear that for a law to, to have gravitas, if you will, to catch on, you also have to educate about it. And I think that it, it's pretty clear to me, this is me, that we need to educate about, I don't know if it's a responsibility or a right, but I do believe that if you see a person in peril, there's a person in peril, right? And I gave, I told the students there are three reasons not to. One is fear. I mean, it's legitimate sometimes. And then I had a student who immediately said indifference, which I thought is absolutely correct. And the other is busyness. And I said, like, what do you mean busyness? He said, well, I can't be late to your class. So if somebody's in well, I got to run to your class because I, you know, I got to get there. I, you know, and I think those are those are three issues that need to be addressed concretely. You know, we've all been there when something bad has happened to someone. And I confess, actually, John, I don't know if you know this. I was in Chicago. I remember on, on State Street or Michigan, I saved someone's life. Yay for me. Yay for me. Okay. But I've also been a bystander and I kept on walking because I was going to a Michigan football game. There you are, Usher. On my way to watch Michigan probably lose, right, in those days. And there was a college student who was a total jerk who upended the cart of a homeless man, which was awful. And I kept on walking. And I kept on walking because I had to get to the game because, you know, the team needed me. That makes me a bystander. 100%. And and I've, I've written about this. I gave myself a failing grade. I said, if there were a law in place in the great state of Michigan, I would have told the prosecutor to prosecute me. I failed as a bystander because I was in a hurry. That, And I don't make any excuses. I'm too old to ex make excuses. I, I think your age and your age doesn't even come, come close to my age. So I. Yeah, but you're young at heart. Young at heart. Wait, let's so let me in the morning. How many states has the legislation been passed? I think there's 28 or 30 countries, and I think 14 or 15 states, if I recall correctly. On enabler legislation, the closest is in the Netherlands, where I testified a few years ago. And leg enabler legislation has been introduced here in Utah. Didn't succeed the first time, but it'll be reintroduced in January. And what Are about you aware of any prosecutions under the law? Of... of, of Enablers, no. Bystanders, yes. Of, uh, of violating the law that you you promulgate. No, you promulgate. here, you know, it's a good question. Has have there been prosecutions here? I I, I don't know, but there've been other um, jurisdictions that are prosecuted bystanders. Right, there was the, the Jodie Foster movie, The Accused. Oh, sure, the about the rape in the in the in the in the bar in Massachusetts. There was a bystander who was prosecuted in Germany. Two bystanders who were prosecuted in Germany according to German bystander law. There was a prosecution, I'm doing this off the top of my memory, Wisconsin. That's what I remember off the top of my head. And what about and Israel? It's all right, literally off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. Going back to Israel with trepidation, does <laughs> does Israel have a pretty strong bystander or enabler law? Yeah, which is not, a, there was a clear instance a few years ago, there was somebody drowning in the in the river after their, their kayak canoe overturned. Oh, yeah. And the prosecutor, there, there is a law. For those kinds of instances, and the prosecutor, the state prosecutor at the time made the decision not to prosecute. No idea why. There, I was approached in the last year, one, about enablers and in sexual, sexual assault interactions. And I've also been approached about bystanders and enablers in the political context. But I, I mean, nothing has really come of it at the moment. But, but I, I have been approached. So it sounds like, you know, just like you had training videos for the IDF, sounds like at least in our heads, we should have, uh, you know, thinking about Elul, our own training videos to say in advance of something like that happening, how would we react and how would we react in a good way? So I, I have begun actually doing bystander training. Universities have bystander videos, which 
because we are on the air and we have to be polite with our English, my students are, most of them are, are pretty outraged by the videos because they find them to be nothing more than check the box and almost insulting. Oh, wow. Um, and that's I've, I've had to watch those as well. And I would agree a hundred percent. One of the, my students put it to me best. She says, my dead dog would pass the test. Um, <laughs> and for victims, that's insulting as hell. Uh -huh. Because they say that you're not taking seriously what happened to me because you're having to check the box, check the box, duck, duck, duck. And even I even had a student who told me I didn't actually watch the video and I passed the test. So that's outrageous. Right. Wow. That's not the point here. I mean, if we're going to be serious about this. Have you found that the Catholic Church has uh, changed its attitudes and has uh, taken responsibility? That is a, that's, you know, that's a great question. When I interviewed Catholic Church survivors, men and women alike, I think that their answer would be lip service. I'm writing an, a new article, literally as we speak, whether the priest whether the priest penitent privilege oh, wow. is a form of enabling. And I'm looking at it through the lens of the Catholic church and of the, of the Mormon church. I'm meeting with a wide array of people. I mean, very, very wide. The, 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 the confessions that whether the fact what, so the, the, the impetus for this article, there's a terrible case in Arizona in which two girls went to the Bishop and said their father was abusing their sister. Mm -hmm. Um, and when the father came to the bishop, who's a lay bishop in the LDS church, they're not ordained. He confessed to the bishop that indeed he was sexually assaulting his four-year-old daughter. The wow. bishop called the LDS hotline, who turned it over to the LDS, the firm that represents the LDS church. And the question was, do they tell the bishop to go to law enforcement? Wow. And the, LDS, the church that represents the church said no. Wow. The, the law the, the the law firm that represents the church said no. And the bishop did not go to law enforcement and the father continued assaulting the girl. Because isn't normally isn't I, I know with like privilege, like uh, you know, lawyer, all these things, if there is a crime that will be committed, aren't you supposed to go? Not in confession. You can't there the, the that's the whole point of the seal of confession. Wow. And so the article I'm writing based on legislation that was introduced here in Utah by, Rep again, Representative King, who is a bishop in the church, is to create some kind of wiggle room that saying that the bishop may go to law enforcement, not must, but may. And we'll see where we go with this. I'm, in the context of writing the article, I'm meeting literally cross-section of Catholic church experts, including church leaders here also with people in Salt Lake City. And I've been told by people who, who are, this is their field of expertise, that what would make my article interesting is it's the first one to ask whether or not the that the, the protection of the confession, the privilege, is a form of enabling. Wow. Um, so that's and we should be careful that. about pointing the finger too much at the Catholic Church when we have some segments of of the Jewish community who were reticent to go to law enforcement and and kept some of these issues under wraps as well. So you know those in glass houses, right? One hundred percent. I mean, there, there, there is a change. And Yaakov Horowitz, there's a leader who's really beginning, and, and the Shivot, our aunts are training their students about what pedophilia is and, and what the sexual advances are. Even in the, and I think in the Bell's Yeshiva system, they've opened up. To so I understand. That's interesting you say that. When I was home now, not important who, what, where, what, wanted me to meet with not important with whom. Because the 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 chatzir, the bells that you just referenced, seem to be um, the most open to recognition that there's a long and undistinguished line of rabbis who are pedophiles. And we'll see how open they are to this because it forces them to confront unpleasant realities. But John's right, you know, yeah. have to be careful. Yeah. We I don't mean, have... What are you protecting? Are you protecting the individual or protecting the institution? I mean, I'm I I keep confidentiality, but I'm I'm sorry to tell everybody that you don't have the protection of the confessional with me if you're going to be doing a crime. But uh, we're good about. Confidentiality. I'll keep that in mind next time I talk to you, Asher, offline. <laughs> <laughs> well, Amos, tell me what is a Jew doing in Utah? <laughs> Talking to you. Um, 
<laughs> doubling the Jewish population. No, listen, I was, I was when I finished with the IDF in 2004, and then my first teaching job was at Case Western in Cleveland, which was great. Huh. And then the associate dean at Case was named the dean here and recruited me. And I've been here since 2007. And from my perspective, I have the, the perfect gig. John, you know that I, I, I live here, teach here, but live in Israel because I commute back and forth. I mean, I, this is a perfect gig for me. I mean, I love teaching. I, I absolutely uh, love teaching. I've, I've created a bystander initiative at the law school. I have nine present and former students who work with me on, I think it's two or three books and two articles at the moment. I mean, and we're also just got a grant for a research project. All focus on the bystander and the enabler. Not a, not a lot of anti-Semitism at University of Utah. Or? I have never run into the. Have I run into anti-Semitism at the anti University? No, no, no. The anti-Semitism I've run into when Crime of Complicity came out, the 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 postings on like Der what is it called Der Stormer the right yeah Der Stormer yeah right sure I mean there are all kinds there was I mean there was unhinged anti-Semitism directed me because I wrote about the Holocaust which surprisingly actually occurred. Oh, I'm, Amos, you're so silly. Right. I have never encountered face-to-face. Face, have I seen comments about me in the press here? Yeah, sure. But, you know, listen, but when I wrote the op-ed about that was published in The Hill about Biden and Netanyahu, trust me, I got warm letters, right? And the most unhinged letter I got, absolutely unhinged email, was, and I quote, it's a shame that your parents weren't burned in the Holocaust. Oh, my goodness. Wait, I'm not done. Dot, 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 you fill in the blank, Jew. The letter, the email sender, his name is 100% a Jewish name. Because mm -hmm. I was also told, because I used the word pogoam to define the actions of the Jewish terrorists. And right. I knew that that would irritate a segment of the American Jewish community. And it did, and that's okay. That's why you write op-eds. Right, right. Well, since you're such a shrinking violet, Amos, you know, I'm wondering how do you segment in your mind, you know, because I, I teach as well, you teach, you teach for real. I'm just an, a lowly adjunct. But, you know, you try to keep your politics at the door. You try to keep some of your opinions at the door to foster, you know, creative discussions among the class so you're not doing a chilling effect. How do you keep those things at the door and still maintain uh, a good dynamic in the class? I make it very clear to my students that, I mean, they, I assume if you can, I mean, if they're bored, they can go online and see what Giora said about this and what Giora said about that. Because, you know, I get interviewed, but I make every effort to leave that outside the classroom for the exact reason you just said, the chilling effect. On the other hand, when I teach criminal procedure, I know this from other students that, that you know, the, the 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 reputation is that I'm very sensitive to victims' rights, and that's true. And I think that the reason I'm very sensitive to victims' rights, and that goes back to Asher's question, there's no doubt that the 20 years I spent in the legal and policy aspects of operational counterterrorism, and I well understand the, the power of the state, and I can well understand sometimes the, the nefarious use of state power makes me at the ripe old age of 66 very sensitive to the rights of the victim. Hang on, I well understand the need for power, this use of power, and I understand counterterrorism. But when I teach criminal procedure, I even ask the students if they know what DWB is, you know, driving while black. And I think that we need to be very sensitive to those issues. Is that my politics? I, you know, I don't think that I don't tell them who I vote for. I assume that, and again, if you want to see what I've been doing in Israel, I'm an open book because I've been interviewed a lot and I've written a lot, but I make every effort to leave that out of the classroom. Well, that's amazing. Let's talk about something more optimistic. I know that one of your gigs that we haven't talked about before is you were a legal advisor to some of the peace negotiations. So tell us what you did then and tell us what you expect for the future. So, for And are you the guy who leaked the Libya story? <laughs> John, if I if I answer that, then I have to worry about your fate. From, from 94 to 99, when I was serving primarily as legal advisor of the Gaza Strip, I was the lead lawyer on implementation in Gaza of the Oslo process. Oh, wow. And then... I told you he was interesting. Sure. And then from about 2010 to 2020, something like that, somewhere there, I was invited to participate in what are called track two negotiations, which are unofficial. And I did that. And I did that because I'm, 
absolutely of the belief that there needs to be a Palestinian state and we need to resolve this thing. How will this play out? Well, first of all, obviously, at the moment with the present government, it's a non-starter. Hold on. Before you go on, the present government in Israel, I, I think, is what you meant. But what about the I'm present sorry. government in, in the Palestinian Authority? Abu Mazen, who is now in his 800th year of a four-year term. Um, right. One man, one vote, one time, right? Right, exactly. I mean, it's a fair question. But also, we also need to be honest about the Palestinians, that it's an important point. A two-state solution is highly problematic because I don't see Hamas in Gaza and the PA in the West Bank resolving their conflict. And I remember Muhammad Akhlan, who was Arafat's right-hand man, strong man in Gaza, who I've spent time with, the Khlan told me once, leave us alone until we get our own house in order. Yeah. And I and I thought, and I actually said that on CNN once, and I, according to Khlan, and I, I, I get that. I mean, I do get that because I think that Abu Mazen, were he to sign an agreement, he would do it without Gaza. And then the argument is without Gaza, he can't sign a peace agreement because you can't sign an agreement to create a Palestinian state without Gaza. There, I mean, that's a significant issue. There is a theory, it's not my theory, that Netanyahu and Abu Mazen are in a mutually beneficial relationship because neither of them wants to resolve the problem. And so they they benefit from each other's not, not disinterest in, in resolving this. What we'll, we'll see what happens with the American-Saudi relationship, where that leads to, and if the Saudis will pay off the, the Palestinians to bring them, you know, kicking and screaming to this thing, I doubt that. We'll see. There's no doubt what you, you know, joking or sarcastically referred to the, the extraordinarily incompetent minute foreign minister that Israel has who is not qualified for his job, who caused enormous damage when he leaked the private conversation, the meeting with the head with the Libyan foreign minister. I mean, there are no words to describe the incompetence. We'll see how that impacts this. And I'm not convinced that this, the Israeli government, the government, wants relations with, with the Arabs. The one who needs it is Netanyahu. He needs the agreement with the Saudis because that's the only way that Biden will invite him to the White House. Yeah, well, yeah, but I think Biden also would like an agreement with the Saudis. That'll be a big feather in his cap. Could be, though there's an article, I think, in Haaretz today that Biden, and I understand this, is literally sick and tired of the Middle East. I mean, I got, I mean he's got China and the small thing called Russia-Ukraine to worry about, which is, you know, this, blip small blip but netanyahu desperately needs an invitation to the white house desperately and the only way he can get it if you ask me is if there's an agreement with the saudis i would like to believe that biden understands that's the only way to invite netanyahu i very much hope he doesn't invite netanyahu it'd be terrible if he invited netanyahu netanyahu needs to agree something with the saudis interesting yeah i think that i don't think it's so bad if biden i don't know if biden gets i when when American presidents obsess about the Middle East and obsess about, it's not always a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, On the other hand, you know, there's, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie. I have not. Golda, right? Which oh, is wonderful, wonderful movie. Is yeah. it? I have not seen it. Um, I'm going tomorrow. Don't spoil anything. Well, she was the prime minister of Israel. You know that. Midwesterner. From Milwaukee. Golda Meyerson. But, you know, on the other hand, um, and I don't know if it's portrayed in the movie, Nixon's decision to rearm Israel in the Yom Kippur War, uh, I'm not sure what happens without that decision. And right. I think that part, part had something, a great deal to do with his enormous respect for her. I don't know if he, about his relationship with Israel, he respected Golda Meir. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's a fantastic film. And I remember living there as a kid. I was only nine years old, but I remember some of the events there. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's worth watching. God, you're young. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah, I didn't know know what war is like. Exciting, ooh, war, Very exciting. I was nine years old, but now reliving it as an adult, it's so emotional. Just some of that film it was like uh, there'll be a lot of tears when you see that film. I'm looking forward to seeing it. As am I, Amos. Want you leave us with some words of wisdom as we enter the high holiday season, knowing that you're not big on the Jewy stuff. I get it, but you know, just secular words of wisdom democracy um, well, absolutely democracy will prevail in israel full stop thanks for having me thank you so much amos we appreciate i encourage everyone to read his books read his articles watch him on 
social media, regular media, anywhere you can, whether you agree or disagree with him, he comes from a place of the heart and it's all good stuff. So thank you, Amos. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. Fantastic. And go blue. Bye. Blue. Thank you. <laughs> Bye, gentlemen. So Bye. long. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wow, John, that was that was very powerful. Yeah, he is a strong-willed dude who really knows his stuff. I assume that there are counters to some of what he said, some of which I assume you may have, that maybe what we should do is let both of us digest it and wait till next week to respond. Yeah, I think that's great. Look, there's a lot that I agree with, but there's some maybe some some areas where I would push back a little bit. But yeah, I would love to I would love to talk about this and let me let me think, let's digest and let's you know, do self-reflection for Elo Cheshbon and uh-huh. FX. <laughs> And, wow. and one question is, I mean, I think we haven't really dealt with it. I'd love to hear your point of view as living in America. You asked this question towards the beginning, but living in America, what are we supposed to do? You know, whatever side we're on. So about not being, you know, a bystander. And again, whatever side we're on. So, yeah, there's a lot to talk about. I, I look forward to that. All right. Sounds great. Well, we went long enough, I think, for now. Everyone has already walk their dog and listen to the podcast and come home. So let's let's pull the plug on it for this week and looking forward until next. Excellent. Take care, John. So long. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk Into a Bar. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to get our next episode delivered right to you. If you really like us, please consider leaving a review and sharing this with a friend. That would really help our efforts. And finally, to contact us and for more show-related information, please visit our website, rabbilawyerbar.com. Special thanks to our production team, David Stone for the introduction music, Andrew Bauman for the artwork, and I'm Nicholas Tantillo. This podcast is co-produced with Front and Social Studios in Chicago. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Copyrighted material, all rights reserved.